Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Australian writer and translator Stephanie Smee to Books, Books, Books to speak about her most recent book, a translation of the prize-winning The Rome Zoo by Pascal Janovjak, published here in August 2021 by Black Ink. Stephanie left a career in the law to work as a literary translator. Her translations have been reviewed in The Economist, The New York Times, The Financial Times and The Times Literary Supplement, as well as, of course, in many newspapers and journals here in Australia. The 2017 translation of No Place to Lay One's Head by Francois Frankel won the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Literary Prize of 2019. The 2019 translation of The Godmother by Hannah-Law Kerr won the 2020 Crime Writers Association Crime Fiction in Translation Award and was significantly one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books of 2019, a most fantastic achievement. The 2021 translation of the prize-winning On the Line, Notes from a Factory by Joseph Pontu has been attracting wonderful reviews. Stephanie's translation of The Rome Zoo, which has won three major literary awards in Europe, has been described by The Australian as beautifully written, immaculate conceived, constructed and paced. Stephanie, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. It's just a complete pleasure to be with you. Now, before we start to talk about the Rome Zoo, I just would like to ask you a few general questions about your work as a translator. You're the first translator that um, I've interviewed here on Books, Books, Books. You speak a number of languages. French, Italian, German, and Swedish. How did you come to speak all of those languages? I should say at the outset that uh, I speak them in varying degrees of fluency these days. Um, I guess I was lucky to be brought up in a household that was full of language, even though um, English was uh, the language that we communicated in at home. Um, My parents' first shared language was French. Um, They met in Geneva. My mother is Swedish and she speaks about five or six languages, um, including French and German and, of course, English. And my father, um, as well as speaking French, also uh, is a classicist and taught uh, Latin and and ancient Greek. So I guess I was just always immersed in in discussions of language as as well as, I guess, language itself. It was something that, that always interested me. As well as studying law, my other degree was in French. Um, I did an honours degree in French. I I couldn't decide which path to go down, I guess. And I suppose it was really uh, after I had my my second child that I guess I felt I wasn't quite prepared to commit myself to the law in a way that perhaps I felt that career deserved and it was a wonderful opportunity to... um, return, I guess, to my original love of of languages and get my uh, translation qualifications. So at first I worked as a legal translator um, for a number of years, in fact, which was was fabulous 
training. And in fact, I, I really enjoyed that work. But then I decided to make the switch and, and, and give the literary translation a go. So I feel incredibly fortunate um, every time I sit down with a with a new book and, and a bit tickled, I have to say, to be able to have the, the chance to sort of work with these extraordinary author's words. It's a real privilege. Stephanie, so far I've noticed that all of the adults' books that you've translated have been into French, but I noticed mm. that you also did a children's series with your mother from the Swedish. Yes, yes. Is French your strongest language? Is that the one that you will continue to work on in relation to adult books? Yes, look, absolutely. I feel perhaps because I have the academic background that is strongest in French, the thesis that I wrote, in fact, was on French criminal law, aspects of French criminal law with a sort of philosophical bent, um, but that was written in French and um, I just feel it's it's I guess the language that I have that sort of substratum of knowledge which which really helps with with the translation and in many ways I think I reflect often that my legal training and the work that I did um, as a researcher and and um, as a judge's associate in fact led me in many ways to the work of translation or assisted, I guess, in, in honing those skills because they are very particular skills that you learn as a lawyer and, um, uh, in, you know, there's there's an element of pedantry in there as well, which I think is incredibly useful for, for a translator and attention to detail, I think, which, you know, hopefully one acquires as a, as a lawyer, but also just that sort of uh, focus on words, which I think really has has helped in my work as a as a literary translator. So I don't for a moment regret um, the legal training that that I've had as well. <laughs> Stephanie, several of the books that you've translated have been prize winners in Europe, The Godmother, On the Line, and now this one, The Rome Zoo. Mm. How do you select the books that you choose to translate? Look, I feel very fortunate that I have the opportunity to do a lot of reading around and and keeping an eye constantly on what is going on in in the French literary world. The way rights are, are sold, of course, is is mysterious and speedy, and you know you you have to very much be on the ball and have some good relationships with publishers to be able to pitch these these books and ideas to them to the overseas um, publisher or to the Australian publisher. Well, uh, of course, one has to determine that the rights are available and and then, of course, in the meantime, put your proposal to, to a publisher or publishers, you know, in, in the Anglophone world who will hopefully share your enthusiasm for the for the book. So, yes, I'm, I'm constantly on the hunt, I guess, looking at literary journals, uh, keeping up to speed with what's going on in the general media and press around, around literary releases, I guess, in much the same way that we do here in, you know, the Anglophone world. But it is, it's a time-consuming process and I think anybody in the arts, you know, whether it's literature or whether it's, you know, another art form pitching ideas and and researching and there's a lot of I guess behind the scenes work that goes goes into that effort that sometimes comes off and and sometimes it doesn't but I feel generally like I've been incredibly fortunate with the with the variety of the projects that I've been able to to work on as well I the, the other point I guess I'd like to make in terms of choosing the work which goes back to your your question is that just because a work is a prize winner in one language doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work as well, find its market, be appreciated in, in another language. But I think, of course, it's often a, a very good indicator that, mm. that the work is a special one and, and worth translating. And frankly, 
you know, not enough, not enough literature from foreign languages gets translated into English. The percentages are shocking. Stephanie, one thing I was really interested in is what your relationship was with the original author of the book in French. So I'm going to ask you that now generally. We'll come to talk about uh, Pascal a little bit later when we talk about the Rome Zoo. But generally speaking, I assume your initial dealings are with the international publisher. But then if you could tell us a little bit about what relationship, if any, you have with the original author. Look, I think it's a... It's a relationship that varies depending on the author's own facility with with, uh, English and the degree of interest, I guess, they are able or willing to show in in the translation. And I think most translators will agree that it's fabulous to be able to have some input from an author if there's something that you'd like to confirm and so on but it doesn't it doesn't always work out that way and very much the text is the sort of source you know document of of what you're trying to to work with and I think that the very nature of the task is always an attempt to find the voice of or the voices of that text and uh so so you start there but you know with certainly with the Rome Zoo I've I've been very fortunate in being able to have you know to develop a lovely relationship I think with with Pascal as well and and hear his views about the book so could you tell us a little bit about that how did that relationship start I think it, it was after I had uh, worked on the translation and and he was happy to to look at the text. Pascal himself, I should add, is an extraordinary polyglot. He uh, speaks, he writes obviously in French, but he has worked as well as a translator into German. His English is immaculate. He speaks Italian as well. So he really is the ideal author for a translator to be working with because I think he understands the the subtlety of what we're trying to do in the in the act of translation. So I think it, we also shared some some interests around art and art history and architecture and so on. So we've been able to to communicate a little bit about that as well. And I've found out a little bit more just on a on a very I guess superficial level in some senses a way about how he's living in Rome and and his family and so on. So that's been a, a real treat, I have to say, to to get a little bit of access into that world. And hopefully one day we will be able to either welcome him here to Australia or. I will be able to visit him wherever he may be. And as you said, he's living in Rome now, isn't he? I gather he's lived there for some time and that he he formed a real fascination with the zoo, the, the subject of the book. That's right. He he has a couple of young children and I think he became familiar with the zoo, taking his, his children um, on visits to the zoo. And I also think he has a, a genuine interest uh, professionally as well in, in the art and architecture and design uh, of the zoo, which I think you'll agree are, are sort of fairly strong themes that, that run through the work. And so I think that is certainly how his idea for um the the story sort of uh, developed and, and found its found its background if you enjoy this conversation with stephanie which i hope you will and if you enjoy her fantastic book which i'm pretty sure you will there's a lovely short clip on youtube of pascal talking in english about this book it's only three minutes if you just google the name of the book the rome zoo and pascal black ink you'll come up with it and uh, i watched it just before we we spoke today and it was fantastic and he it was very entertaining the way he used the little Lego figures of the zoo, but uh, it was really interesting to hear him speak. So, listeners, if you're enjoying this experience, I do I recommend that you do that. 
Let's move now, Stephanie, to talk specifically about the Rome Zoo. I'm going to ask you to start by reading a short extract, please. Of course. I'll I'll introduce it, I guess, by saying that the extract that I'll read is one where Giovanna, the Rome Zoo's uh, communications and marketing director, is paying a visit to the enclosure of Oscar the Tamondin, who is a sort of scaly anteater. Um, and the last of his kind where and he he lives at the zoo and she's going to meet zoo's director and the zoo's vet doctor dr morrow there that is how europe's last rinderpest epidemic was brought to an end when the old keeper recounted the episode to giovanna he used other words colored by his roman accent and by details only he knew not that he himself had witnessed the epidemic but he had been born in July of that year in 1949 during the quarantine. His father was just a young keeper at the time. He had often told his son how he had scaled the fence to get to the maternity ward that night. But all of that is in the past. Tempi passati, said the keeper, looking at the tamandin. Both of them were in its enclosure, waiting for the zoo's director and for Moro. The creature had taken cover behind its bush with just the tip of its snout and the husky sound of its breathing discernible. Giovanna asked if she might approach it, but the keeper replied that it was a timid animal and its claws could be dangerous. It's quite a sight to see Oscar suddenly rear up on his hind legs. He has only done it to me once, but that was back in the beginning when we didn't know each other yet. Normally he's only active at night. Sometimes he'll even go for a climb in the tree, but these days that's rare. He's getting on now, like me. In any case, I'm very happy he's not going off to Lund, added the man running a calloused hand over his face. The silence that had settled between animal and humans was interrupted by the insistent ring of Giovanna's phone, which she didn't feel like answering. She was cold. She was also ashamed not to have paid more attention to this creature. Now it was about to become a curiosity. And suddenly she realised this very simple fact, that in the rush to sell the spectacle of so many different animals, how easy it was to forget the fascination conjured by the presence of just a single one. Moro had told her that when observing an animal, one should first take note of its tracks, and Giovanna shivered to see the deep gashes etched into the tree trunk. The enclosure was tainted violence and solitude. The keeper cleared his throat. I'd very much like, he said in a hoarse voice, I mean, if it's possible, I've already asked the dottore, I'd very much like to keep looking after him. Stephanie, thank you. Could you tell us what this book, The Rome Zoo, is about? What is it about? At one level, I think the novel is about the zoo and zoos generally and and the purpose they serve both sort of socially um, from a scientific point of view and, of course, anthropologically and metaphorically. And the author uses this retelling of the Rome Zoo's history to give us access, um, I guess, um, to the dramas of of the backdrop of Italy itself and and the the history of that country against the backdrop of the zoo but i think fundamentally the book is about much more than that i think in a way the the sort of construct of the zoo and its attempts to confine and constrain its animals act as a foil if you like for for the author's own musings and and um, consideration of the sort of human existential crisis um, and I think there's a there's a wonderful sort of contrast between the sort of artifice of, of the zoo 
and the fact that that our own sort of human life is in fact no more absurd than the artificiality of the of the zoo itself and and he's looking constantly at ways in which humans can make sense of of this absurdity and i think you you might agree with this um that one of the ways he does this is just uh, by looking at the at how connections are formed both between the main protagonists giovanna uh the the zoo's uh marketing and communications director and shayin gabi who's a who's an architect who is there to consider some proposal for the development of the zoo there's that relationship there's the relationship between the keeper of uh one of the zoo's more peculiar animals the tamandin which i referred to in my reading and and also i guess the the relationship that the zoo has with the future of of uh rome and and its meaning i guess in 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 how it's going to justify its existence moving forward as you've pointed out there are two parallel narratives there one relates to the history of the zoo which again mm. as you've said in a way parallels the history of italy through the 20th century and then one relates to the present it's set round about 2009 2010 one question i did want to ask you before we move to talk about those diverse narratives is that it's interesting that in the language used you've done this in the translation and i'm assuming it was the case in the original the present tense is used for the historical part mm. and the past tense is used for the present part mm. why do you think john of jack did that it's an extraordinary slippage isn't it um and i have to say as as the translator it was always a jolt to make sure that you were working in the correct tense that mm-hmm. was obviously a very deliberate choice on the part of the author isn't it? it is and i think much of it uh serves to make the history of the zoo very present um because it is written in the present tense there's an immediacy to it as well and there is also then i think it it helps with this notion of of history sort of flashing past very quickly often he he traverses sort of great swathes of of history in a in a very short time um which i think is helped by that that use of tense and then there's this weightedness if you like of the present day characters and protagonists which seems by contrast to move very slowly sometimes and and scenes that unfold gently and with no particular speed and i think again the use of the use of the tense and the past tense helps w- with that with that contrast mm. it's a fascinating linguistic technique actually mm. all right let's talk a little bit about the history of the zoo it does very much reflect the history of italy through the 20th century mm. and uh, i made a lot of notes on this we're not going to get to talk about all of it but i'll just i'll pick out just a few key points let's start with the early history of the zoo which opened in 1911 and we have the german creator should i call him or architect karl hagenbeck yes explains his vision to the mayor of rome and he says it's going to be a vision of perfect coexistence an illusion of utmost freedom and one of the significant things about this zoo as i understand it is that hagenbeck's original conception was that there would be no bars or walls that the animals would as it were appear to be roaming free mm-hmm. in an unconstrained way would you like to talk a little bit about that early history and the early conception of the zoo 
I think, again, it needs to be understood in the context of what was going on with zoos around Europe. And it's a sort of a fairly unattractive history in the context of, you know, the colonial history of what was going on with so many European nations and so on. In many ways, zoos sort of reflected the colonial aspirations of these countries. And and it's an unappealing sort of history. Do you mean there the examples spoken about here of animals being shipped in from Eritrea and from Libya and Somalia, which were Italian colonies? Yes, exactly. And that was, and I think that was the case for for zoos, you know, around Europe. That this was a it was a way of the the nations like Italy, like the other countries, of displaying this sort of colonial might and so on. And so a great deal of effort was was put into the design of of these places. And Hagenbeck, I think, is was renowned for his design of zoos in in a number of of different cities around around Europe. And there is some uh, discussion I think I've I've seen in in some other writings about about the novel, you know, emphasizing this very uh, the way that that many of the enclosures and buildings represent places from other parts of the the world and so on, and sort of help to give that notion of otherness to the animals and and their enclosures, which then stands in very sort of stark contrast to the humans who are who are watching them and and observing them. Um, but absolutely Hagenbeck, I mean that is the, one of the fascinating things in uh, Jean of Jacques' book is that that history he captures very deftly, really with a with an incredible lightness of touch for the amount of knowledge that they're real characters they're 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 crazy characters in in some respects some of the the people that he talks about in creating the zoo and the various you know the 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 fake matterhorns and and the way you know the details in which these these mock mountains were built in in the middle of rome uh, is a madness in itself but but you didn't need to make it up because these are these are real people and and you know were very much part of the the zoo's history. So let's jump forward now to the 1920s where we hear about a visit from a very sensitive and attentive man. Who is he and what's he doing at the zoo? Why is he visiting? I suspect you might be referring to Benito Mussolini and in fact uh, the chapter which describes that was one chapter which I was deciding whether or not I would uh, I would do as as the reading. So he has come to visit his lioness um, who he has as um, Genovjak uh, writes you know very unoriginally called Italia who who is now being kept by the by the zoo. So having been been uh, gifted this this animal it's of course outgrown his ability to look after it and is now being being housed in the zoo but again Genovjak's descriptions of of Mussolini and you know the the that backdrop of fascism it's not just through his relationship with his own lioness but also the the various other animals as mm-hmm. as well which which form part of that story which is just fascinating there's a great line where so i think that mussolini became dictator in 1925 and i should say mm-hmm. that as you say one of the beautiful things about this book is the density of the history mm-hmm. it certainly had me checking lots of historical details of what was happening at the time. Mussolini became dictator in 1925, and then we read in in the book how in 1927 
he's now the dictator, and he orders an extension mm. of the zoo. And he says, or the author reflects, the virility of an empire is proportionate to the size of its zoo. Yanovak, in that YouTube extract that I referred to, said that one of the things he wanted to show was how the fascists used the zoo for their own purposes. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes, look, it's a, it's an interesting angle to uh, by which to sort of observe what, what was going on in the zoo. There was one occupant of the zoo called uh, Fritz, who was the Marsican brown bear, who was trained to give a, a Nazi salute when children were were feeding it its sweets. And I think again it's this this metaphor for training these animals in this mindless, thoughtless way, which perhaps can be understood as the way in in the same way that whole populations were trained to sort of follow mindless orders and and so on in the the time of, of fascism and so on in not just Italy of course so i i think it's a again a it's not something that Jean-Jacques dwells on he it, he deals with it swiftly passing through but with a a scythe i guess that he cuts through so so much history with a with this extremely insightful and perspective perspective i guess that that allows him to make these comments that are sort of almost like aphorisms mm. I, I i think which um he often finishes one of the chapters with a comment like that that literally sets you back on your haunches as a as a reader in the sort of acuity of their observation Mm. And I think those the 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 metaphor between you know the the role of the animals at that time and what was going on politically in, in Greater Europe is is masterful, really. Let's talk now about the narrative that occurs in the present test tense, Stephanie. And that's I think as I worked it out, about 2009, a lot mm. of this activity is happening. So there are three main characters in this part of the narrative. You've mentioned them, and please excuse my pronunciation, which won't be as lovely as yours. But <laughs> Not at all. There's Shaheen Gabi. What mm-hmm. do we know about him? Who's he? So he is uh, uh, an Algerian architect who's who's currently living in the in the Middle East and um, has been summoned to to Rome on for the suggested development proposal uh, for work which is going to be presumably a new project for for the zoo's future. And uh, that's how he comes to find himself in in Rome. And, in fact, the book opens with his arrival in the hotel room in Rome, which uh, has a view out over to the the great aviary of of the, the Rome Zoo. And there's something quite spectacular about that, Avery, isn't there? I, I wasn't aware of it. Again, I had to look it up and look at the pictures. Well, it's it's one of, and, and in fact, um, when translating it, it was incredibly useful to go back and look at some of the pictures and, and descriptions of these buildings that that the author was describing because it does help to have a visual image of, of what you're trying to translate. And, yes, that was that was a very particular sort of architectural feature of the zoo, which which still exists, and you can, you can look it up if you're interested. Stephanie, what about one of the other main characters, Giovanna Di Stefano? 
Yeah. Can you tell us a little so, bit about her? So she, in many ways, has been uh, handed a poison chalice as she's been appointed uh, the, the marketing communications director and, and has, in fact, far too many responsibilities for the zoo than she's probably being paid for. She knows that the zoo is facing very troubled times. Attendances are down and her job is to try and reinvigorate the public's interest in the zoo. Um, as we sort of discover through the novel, it has had so many different incarnations historically and so many different emphases th throughout its, its history. But where it finds itself now is in a very sorry state. There is vegetation you know, taking over the place. It's no longer the place where families come for a, a, a passeggiata on a, you know, on a Sunday afternoon. And a lot of the sort of Baroque splendor that that went with its original history has just slowly, slowly dissipated and crumbled away. And so Giovanna's job is to try and use the limited funds that they have, which uh, are rapidly sort of disappearing before her eyes, to try and get the public interested again and to justify its its existence. And somebody who's assisting her with that is Dr. Guido Moro, the zoo's yes. chief scientist or zoologist. Tell us about him. He is an intriguing character, isn't he? And we discover quite quickly that he has quite a different agenda to, to Giovanna's and he's incredibly superior to, to Giovanna in his dealings with her. He very much considers the zoo his domain. And in fact, one of the wonderful techniques I think that, that the author uses is Moro's ability to observe the animals, which is then transferred to his observations of the human protagonists, which yeah. are so clever and so insightful and lend so much um, in such a short description to, to what is motivating these characters. So we get a lot of understanding about what is happening with the characters through Moro's eyes. Yeah. But he very much has, has his own agenda and way in which he thinks he is going to to sort of reinvigorate the, the zoo and, and uh, make it a, a truly sort of noteworthy institution. I made a note of exactly what you'd said, that the way he observes humans is almost with the same air of clinical detachment that he observes the animals. So when we get a description of Giovanna, who we've learned elsewhere in the book is just a very beautiful, attractive woman, the way he describes her is in terms of the shape of her tibia and the shape of her Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, it's it's shocking in a way when when you read it because it is so clinical, and yet there's a there's an accuracy about it still that that is quite disarming, and 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 you're sort of forced to say, yes, well, he, he's right. That's a, that that observation is incredibly mm. um, precise and acute, and so I think it it works as well to remind us of that other theme that we spoke about earlier of the fact that these these human protagonists we're, we're all just animals you know and, and it actually just is is an incredibly skillful way of of reminding us of, of that theme let's talk now about possibly the main character i won't say of the book but perhaps of this part of the narrative the tamandan i'm yeah. going to let listeners know something that i didn't know till i googled it this is a fictional creature but what is it, Stephanie? What sort of an animal is it and, and why is it so special? It presented quite an interesting challenge from a translation point of view because it is a made-up um, animal. In the French, it, it, it relates both to the, the French word for an anteater, which is a tamanoir, 
and and also a, a pangolin which so it is a combination of of these couple of words it's it's a um it's a sort of like a an anteatery type of creature and and so there was a question as to how that should best be rendered in the english and i played around a bit with it but i think i decided that tamandim would actually work just as well in the english as it does in the french because it also has that it harks back to a tapir and so on which is a similar animal so as you say it is in fact a, a made up creature oscar as is he's called in in the book is special because we discover that he is the last of of his kind and so it again he is if you like the that sort of metaphor for the the human existential sort of crisis the zoo's existential crisis and and how on earth we try and understand the fact that that this this creature will in fact you know die out before our very eyes and before the 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 eyes of of Rome's zoo's visitors and of course he becomes the draw card for the the uh, the zoo and in ways in which not even Giovanna or Dr Moro could possibly have have imagined um he manages to capture the the imagination of the of the entire world as this example of a creature that is you know becoming extinct there are balloons there's merchandise there's rulers there's pencils there's pens there are, there's talk about building a taman Mm. They set aside a whole part of the zoo, especially to have an educational exhibit. And basically this completely revives the fortunes of the zoo Mm. so that masses of people are pouring in. And as you say, not just from Rome, but from all of Italy. And then he becomes a bit of an internet sensation as well. What do you think that Yanuk is Mm. saying there about the exploitation by humans of animals for commercial purposes? It's a, it's a really interesting question, that one. Uh, I I tended to look at that episode, if you like, and and the the sort of going viral of of Oscar's fate as more a sort of comment about this ability that we have to create this crazy uncontrolled interest in something so quickly, and and what that means in terms of knowledge and how how we understand something of this scale in a in an internet world i hadn't really thought about it in terms of a point that that jean jacques might be trying to make in terms of the way humans exploit animals but yeah yeah i think i think the the effect that that I found most touching, and I guess it's it's that contrast again between a, a a broad internet sensation as we you know see on a daily basis, and the impact that it has on our own personal lives is a scene where um, the keeper is describing the the sea of people who are streaming past this enclosure, and he notices that all of them are just trying to make contact with themselves and the person standing next to them. And it's that idea of actual, real, physical connection that I I guess I was trying to get at earlier. And it's, it's almost like a trying to grip onto something. And I think that puts me in mind as well of one of the other themes that that just kept constantly re- returning that you have this incredibly artificial place 
that is the zoo and it's mapped and there, there are buildings that, that appear that are very sort of heavy, I guess, that exist in, the, in their own weight and so on. And yet the characters, the protagonists, Shaina and Giovanna in particular, are just constantly getting lost. It's just a, 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 returning, a returning theme in the book that no matter how many maps he has of the zoo, Shaheen can never work out where he is. Giovanna herself is never quite sure how to get back to her office from the various places she goes. And it's like, on the one hand, you have this incredibly artificial, you know, designed place that is confined, and yet you're at sea in you know, as you're making your way your your way through it as a human, and I think that that scene with all of the the visitors to the zoo and to Oscar trying to hold on to something is is almost like an attempt to ground themselves in some sort of meaningful reality mm. that the zoo is constantly trying to represent, but in fact, for all of its efforts, can't constrain. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I was going to say, it made me think of another part of the book where at one point Giovanna and Guido try to create a path so that it made me think of an Ikea store. Yes. So that people had to walk in a certain direction and all roads would lead ultimately to the, the Tamandin. They, it, that was a, an effort to control people and, to, and, and then she realises that, of course, that will stop a lot of the joy of visiting a, a zoo, which is being able to meander off into paths or directions that catch your eye. Yes, and it and it prompted as well those lovely re, um, reflections and memories of when she, as a as a young girl, had sort of hidden in the bushes, um, yes. you know, and with a boy. And, and, yes, exactly, um, and and tried to disappear from sight for parents and so on, and that and not only would she. Um, sort of get into trouble with with keepers of other animals who felt that their particular, you know, exhibits weren't going to be appreciated because they would be directed past um, on their way to see Oscar, but also would just remove any possibility of meandering um, through the zoo and and sort of remove the magic and mystery that mm. that the zoo itself is meant to sort of represent. Steph, yeah. one of the, the major themes that I think we've touched on but I wanted to talk mm. a little bit more about now is this whole concept of human attempts to conquer nature, to exert mm. a mastery, a supremacy over animals. And he shows that in a whole lot of different ways. He gives various examples of the cruelty of a zoo. And I mean, there's so many, I was noting them as I went through, but mm. right from the beginning when animals were transported from Hamburg to the Rome Zoo in 1910, many of them die in the journey. And in fact, he says, yes, he expects to lose 20% and the journey over. Another example of cruelty related to what you talked about, that story of Fritz the Bear, who's been taught mm. to do the fascist mm. salute. When the US soldiers arrive in Italy and they meet Fritz, they're so amused by what he does that they make him keep doing it over and over and over again and they keep giving him more and more and more sweets until he collapses. He collapses. Mm. So there's a real underlying theme of this, the, the whole concept of keeping animals in captivity like this being cruel, mm. the attempts by humans to to really exert their supremacy, their mastery over animals. Would you like to talk a little bit about that theme? Yeah, look, I think it is a it is a, a constant theme of any book that is is looking at zoos, isn't it? And the role where that that humans play, thinking that we are at the um, top of the the that particular pyramid, and and how we make 
animals the other, I guess, by uh, confining them and I, I suppose trying to to force them into this environment that 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 suits us. There are it has to be understood, I suppose, against the other work that that zoos do, which um, you know the the preservation of species and so on. And I and I think Janovjak deals with that as well. It's a funny, it's a place that is just so full of contrast, zoo. On the one hand, I know um, Janovjak himself has spoken about the um, significance of animals and zoos as as places of fable and 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 mythology that are sort of fundamental to you know our children's upbringing and and it's you know that the, the thing that we all learn how to make animal sounds and think that we uh, are going to sort of understand them understand their world and have access to them somehow but it's always at this remove and he tells a wonderful story in fact when he took his very young boy to to see the zoo that he was trying to get him um interested in the ducks that that were flapping around on the on the lake and in fact no despite his best efforts he could only get his un, his son was just absolutely captivated by the information panel instead and couldn't drag his eyes away from that to actually appreciate the the zoo it is just i guess yet another example of of this attempt by humans i think to control our environment and to make sense of it and i think it is that absurdity that zoos in fact so perfectly represent that janovjak struggles with in fact in at most stages of the zoo's history because it is that trying to make sense of something that is ultimately you know, incomprehensible in in terms of the cruelty that that it imposes on animals, in terms of uh, you know h- how do we confine animals that are you know meant meant to be out in the wild, you know, in these ridiculous, you know, no matter how beautifully designed spaces that uh, we we as humans seem seem to be you know perpetually fascinated by by exerting this sort of control. It's a way of subduing our own anxiety about things, I guess, the unknown and so on. We can give things a name. We can put them in a cage. We can observe them. It sort of allows us to make inventories of of, of these animals' existence and, and thereby, I guess, make them part of our own world at the same time as keeping them quite distinct from our own human reality. Stephanie, I'm going to finish with a couple of questions. Well, I guess it's, no, it's a couple of questions about translating. (laughs) It's a double barrel question. What do you find the most challenging aspect of your translation work and what's the most rewarding? Every every book I open is, is a new challenge. The most obvious answer to that is that each book is about, is different. And so you are sort of thrust into a, different world a different voice different characters and it is that struggle to to find the voice that is constant in in work as a translator i think sure you might come across vocabulary that is unfamiliar and so on and that can be looked up but but really the the skill is in finding 
in finding the sort of subtlety of of the authors, what, what they're trying to to achieve in their language, and hoping that its new anglophone audience will be able to have the same response to the text if you've if you've done your your job properly. I think I think there is probably the most useful habit is is self doubt, <laughs> just to be constantly checking yourself, checking the text, never making assumptions about what an author might be intending to do and sort of relaxing your brain, I guess, as you try and as you try and do that work. In terms of it, what's the most rewarding? I mean, I do I do passionately believe in the importance of translation as a as an act of empathy. I think you know, only 3% of literature that we have on our shelves in the English-speaking world is literature that's in translation, which is just such a tragic indictment. It is not the same in reverse. I might add the percentages are, are much higher of work that is coming from English into other languages. Is that in the English-speaking world generally or are you speaking specifically in Australia? No, no, that's across across the English-speaking world. And it's a figure that hasn't really shifted much. Why um, do you think that is, Stephanie? Why is it 3%? I had no idea it was that low? I think uh, there is a fundamental lack of interest, honestly, in in what is going on in most other parts of the world and uh, that also feeds into what publishers decide is is worthy of, of being translated. And it's a cycle that feeds on itself, I think, because then there is an assumption, well, you know, it, it will be risky if we translate this. We've only got so many number of books that we can publish on a list and, you know, we we can't risk it not it not doing well. It's obvious that prize winners will usually be translated and, and so on into English. But you know that there will be translators from from far less popular languages than French, or far less well known, I guess, languages than, than French, who will say, you know, that they don't even get a look in 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 terms of the literature that that we get access to. And yet, I don't actually know how we can hope to understand what what motivates people, what drives people. I think I think it's it's there are two edges to this. On the on the one hand, it sort of emphasizes our diversity as humans and and that notion of being able to walk in somebody else's shoes and be able to understand. But I think almost perhaps as important is this notion that it is a reminder of our common humanity. The fact that we are reading these stories from 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 elsewhere and understanding what it is that drives us and, and what moves us, what affects us, is in fact universal. And not to have access to these stories feels somehow criminal. And I think in this day and age, notwithstanding the plethora of information that we have at our disposal about any topic under the sun, it sometimes feels that never have we been sort of further removed from, you know, our fellows, you know, citizens of the world in so many other other countries, and which is why I mean, I, I remember your your interview with George Saunders, you know, about why it is we still read the Russians, you know, and we're not reading the Russians except courtesy, for most of us anyway, courtesy of the work of a translator, but that is still considered to be a fundamental way in which we can examine sort of a, a, a range of human emotions and, you know, the fact that they are 
they are Russian short stories, which might not have much at all in common with, with, you know, my life here in living in Sydney, Australia in, you know, 2021, still they have something to offer us. And I think that's the truly extraordinary thing about translating from a writer's point of view. But I do think it's very interesting, the comments that people like Jumpa Lahiri make, Stefan Zweig, that, you know, who, who are writers and translators themselves, that really they say that the best way to improve one's writing is to translate. And I think it's that very close reading of a text that really often only translators do because they have access to it that, um, you know, it, it teaches you about your own language when you're <laughs> grappling with, you know, the things that you that are going on in, in that other language and how to transfer them from one to the other. So maybe that's the thing. Maybe every author should actually be, you know, it should be compulsory that they be a translator as well. <laughs> You're a wonderful advocate for your profession. I can't think of a <laughs> description or explanation of why translation is so important. This is a magnificent book, The Rome Zoo. I just recommend it wholeheartedly to everybody that's listening. Your translation is so deft. I'm, I haven't read the original in the French, but I'm absolutely convinced that you've caught all the nuances and the subtleties. Congratulations. Thank you so much for bringing this wonderful book to the attention of English-speaking audiences. Keep up the good work. Keep doing what you're doing. And thank you so much for appearing today on Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. A real privilege. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.